As many of you know, a few weeks ago, the special branch raided the offices of Radioactive and took away several programs from the investigative journalist series Probe Round the Back. <laughs> In addition, they also took away a copy of Uncle Mike Stan's program under the Offences to Minors Act <laughs> and a copy of our Saturday morning program, Way Hey, It's Saturday, <laughs> on the grounds that the head of the Metropolitan Police was a big fan of Aaron the Aardvark. <laughs> But we are delighted to say that we can now broadcast this special Pro Brown the Back special. This week on a very special, special Pro Brown the Back special, <laughs> we investigate the Secret Service in an attempt to find the fifth man. We started by sending our investigative reporter Nigel Pry to MI5, and true to form, within an hour, he disappeared up the M15. <laughs> so just who is the fifth man? Is it Sir Maurice Watt, ex-head of MI5 and now retired antiques dealer? Suspect number one. Or is it David Howe, international businessman and retired naval inspector? Suspect number two. Or is it Albert Harris, a milkman in Barnsley, who just happened to be walking past when we were recording the footsteps? Irrelevant. We began our investigation by looking at the first, second, third and fourth men. So far, we knew about Burgess, McLean, Blunt and Philby. But there was a question mark about Philby. We knew his Christian name was Phil, but what did the B stand for? <laughs> then we tumbled it. Burgess. Philby was in reality Phil Burgess. <laughs> Philby and Burgess were the same man. So there it was. We were no longer looking for the fifth man, but for the fourth man. <laughs> Previously been thought to be Blunt, uh, but who was now promoted to the third man after our discovery that the first and fourth men were the same man. <laughs> it was all starting to become clear. <laughs> and so we took our inquiry about the identity of the fourth man, formerly the fifth man, to the present head of MI5, Sir William Rocker. Radioactive's program the bank. All I can tell you is that someone, I can't tell you who, but someone well-known in certain circles, I can't say which ones, was involved in something, I can't say what, which fundamentally affected something that I can't tell you about. I trust I make myself clear. No. Oh, oh good, I was afraid I might have given rather too much away. This question of the fifth man is so delicate that I'm afraid I can only answer your questions indirectly by means of riddles. I see. Well, uh, perhaps you could start by telling me a little more about Sir Anthony Blunt. Certainly. Uh, there once was a spy named of Blunt, <laughs> who many considered... Yes. intrigue and suspense. What will be dig out when we've the back? Oh, indeed. Armed with this information and a book of limericks sold to us at half price by Sir William, <laughs> Martin Brown started with the man right at the very top of his list, suspect number two, <laughs> David Howe, whose house he visited in Bristol. I'd like you to comment, Mr Howe, on allegations that you have leaked top-secret documents to the Russians. I think you want David. He's not in right now. Um, uh, who, who are you, then? I'm his wife. Oh, so um, when will he be back in, then? Hmm? Well, not until around seven. Not until around seven, yes. Well, um, you, you'd better just tell him Martin Brown called, then. 
Who? Martin Brown. Martin? Brown. Sorry, you're from... I'm from Birmingham, actually. But I, that's what that's got to do with anything. I'm, I'm I mean, what company? Oh, uh, radioactive. Oh, really? I'm mm. sorry he missed you. Oh, really? Oh. <laughs> Sounds rather a nice man, actually. Russian spies British moles Dissident jacks Revolting bulls No one's spared That's a fact When we start to probe Around your back <laughs> Our investigations thus far had led us to one conclusion that Martin Brown was the wrong person to front them. <laughs> and so Nigel Pry took it upon himself to hunt out the so-called fifth man by single-handedly surrounding the city of Bristol. <laughs> this he did by driving very fast around its perimeter until he was stopped by the police and thrown in jail. <laughs> it was here that Nigel accused one police constable, Timothy Pringle, of being a Nicaraguan arms dealer. <laughs> Uh, which, by a sad and staggering coincidence, he was. <laughs> and so Nigel was unfortunately let out to continue his ruthless pursuit in the quest for truth and the fifth man. One thing that no one can deny, can deny. His program the back is never shy, never shy. Say out loud, oh, why, oh, why, why, why? Did we give the job to Nigel <laughs> Why, indeed. Well, with the hunt for the fifth man hotting right up, with the net closing in, what better time could there be for joining our agony aunt Joanna Jaundice? She's here now, along with Radioactive's resident doctor, ready for this week's problem phone-in for spies. So if you're a spy with any personal or professional problems... Why not give us a ring on this number? 4856242. I shan't repeat that. <laughs> Oh, and by the way, that's 01 if you're outside London and uh, 007 if you're a member of the Secret Service. OK, and I believe our first caller now is on the line. Hello, John. I've, I've been trying to smuggle top-secret documents out of GCHQ for the last year now, and I just don't seem to be able to. I'm, I'm at the end of my tether. I don't know what to do. Have you tried photocopying, lovey? <laughs> Well, it is an excellent way of smuggling out entire documents of national security without anybody missing them. Oh, thank you. Mm. Not at all, love it. That's what we're here for. Next caller, please. Hello, Joanna. My husband's a high-ranking cabinet minister in the present government, and he's recently passed on secrets of national security to the Russians. <laughs> of course, if it gets out, it'll be the end of his career. And what's the problem? Well, I was just wondering which Sunday newspaper I should tell my story to. <laughs> Well, this is one we get time and time again, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Of course, the tabloids will pay you more, but for maximum impact and the best publishing deals afterwards, you can't be the Times or Observer. Oh, right. What's his name, by the way? Oh, he's on television all the time. He's. Uh, well, he's I'm afraid we're running out of time and we've got to move on to our last caller. Hello? Mm, hello, yes. This is Simon Dunkley of MI5. Uh, I just wanted to say that the Secret Service is a very honest organisation and I, I think you're portraying it in a very bad light. And where are you calling from? I'm not calling from anywhere, I'm just tapping into your phone line. Oh, dear! Got <laughs> <laughs> Chinese, Russian roulette, too. 
French little Spanish eyes and Danish blue. Shady little travelers and shabby little Max. Time for a program for that fight I did. Super. Well, it was at this point we concluded that perhaps we should concentrate our attention on the first man on our list and the third man on Martin's, uh, Sir Maurice Watt, now retired and believed to be living somewhere in the north of England. Uh, consequently, Nigel Pry took the first plane out of Heathrow to Brisbane <laughs> to talk to and interrogate his aunt, who, as far as we knew, had nothing to do with the case. Uh, she it was who gave us a lead by hitting Nigel firmly round the head with a cricket bat. <laughs> A lead which I personally have since taken up with alarming regularity. Suspicion had fallen on Sir Morris for several reasons. Like Burgess and Blunt, he had been a member at Cambridge of a sinister organisation that constantly undermined the establishment and sought to bring about the downfall of the government. The notorious Footlights. <laughs> and then there was a question of his full and frank confession in 1969 that he was a spy. This confession caused the government to take drastic action. They immediately knighted him and promoted him to become Keeper of the Queen's Pictures. Sir Maurice Watt had an impeccable background. Eton, Oxford, the Brigade of Guards, and all before going to kindergarten. But there were certain question marks surrounding him. Who really knew him? What did they know about him? And what did Watt know? What about David Howe? We know that Howe knew Watt, but did Watt know Howe? <laughs> Why didn't he come out into the open and tell why? Sir Leonard Why, that is, the head of special operations. For more information on Sir Morris's background, the radioactive rep are going to provide us with a biographical dramatisation, or as they would call it, a dramatisation. Sir Morris's early life was well known, but then came the unknown months. He left England for France, and at 11.30 on June the 3rd, 1929, his train pulled into Paris. Paris, this stop, Paris. I see Paris. Ici Paris. Eiffel Tower going up. Paris in 1929, alive with parties and fun. Paris of Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. This then was the Paris where his train pulled in. and ten minutes later pulled out again. Unfortunately, he would have seen none of that, in fact. But on this brief trip to Paris, he saw and absorbed many foreign influences. Influences from places like... Clapham Junction, Hurley Oaks, Whiteleaf South, and Caterham. Thank you. Yes, and it was... The front four carriages will go to Reedham, Stephen, Woodminster, and Tattenham Corners. Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. That's, that's quite enough scene-setting. Thank you very much. <laughs> and so it was that in the... The buffet car... <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and it was in the spring of 1930 he went up to Cambridge, only to be sent back down again because he wasn't due to go up until the autumn of 1932. <laughs> Cambridge in 1932 was unlike the Cambridge of today. For a start, there was no Marks and Spencers in the high street. <laughs> students sitting in their rooms getting depressed listening to the latest album by the Smiths. <laughs> the early Leonard Cohen albums were just starting to become popular. And it was here that the young Morris Watt arrived. Cambridge, this is Cambridge. <laughs> this is Cambridge. Cambridge in 1932. The Cambridge of old world values. Of bicycles. 
And of Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. <laughs> this was the Cambridge of the bright young things. Future writers like Isherwood. Bless you. Isherwood, Auden, Evelyn, war ministers. <laughs> Evelyn War. Ministers of the future and others. Yes, yes, thank you, Felicity. Felicity Morgan, by the way, is a member of the National Jockeys Club. <laughs> but was there anything about the young Morris Watt that suggested he might come to spy for the Russians? A contemporary remembers him. Well, I remember him reading Marx occasionally. Mm -hmm. Often he came down to dinner in hall without a tie. Mm. Oh, yes, and he regularly said coded messages to Russia on his own radio transmitter. <laughs> but then everybody did that at the time. Didn't they? But did they? Is it true that Cambridge has always been a hotbed for recruiting Soviet spies? Professor Graham English of Trinity College, Cambridge. No, it's a lot of rubbish. <laughs> Believe me, there are not even any Russian people in Cambridge today. But uh, by the sound of it, you yourself are Russian, are you not? N no, not at all. <laughs> I was born in the sleepy rural village of Reading in Berkshire. <laughs> I am as English as the day is long. <laughs> What is your accent, then? What accent? Your, well, what can only be described as Russian accent. It is an accent I picked up from writing to a pen friend in Lubyanska. It's quite uncommon, isn't it, picking up an accent from writing to someone? Yes, it is. Altogether more common to pick it up from living somewhere for a long time, I would have said. Are you trying to imply that I am not English in some way? No, no. Yes, yes, I am. <laughs> account for the fact that the college at which you claim to be tutor in Egyptology and Coptic have uh, never heard of you. You have done your homework very well, Mr. Channel. In fact, a little too well. <laughs> it's only a shame that you won't be around to get your reward. Well, that sorted him out. And as war clouds a hundred med loomed over Europe, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain awaited a visit or a visitor. Come in. Ah, Sir Mortimer Johnson, Secretary to the Cabinet and Head of the Secret Service. Thank you, Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister from 1936 to 1940. You asked to see me on a matter of national impotence. <laughs> impotence. Yes, I believe we may have a tutoria, a, a traitor here. Yes, but there was no time to look into that because it was now time for World War XI. <laughs> What troubles no man, an owl in a sack. What troubles every man, a probe round the back. It seems that there was a spy working for the Russians all through the war. We taxed Sir William Rocker. Probably the first time he's ever been taxed. <laughs> Sir William, am I right in thinking that certain secrets were given to the Germans in 1943 by someone in this department? I'm afraid I can't answer that, as it is in breach of the Official Secrets Act. All right. Sorry about that. I'll answer anything else I can. Would you like a cup of coffee? Uh, I'd like tea. Is that possible? I'm afraid I can't answer that. <laughs> it's covered by the Official Secrets Act. So, two coffees it is, then. Uh, Miss Kent, could we have two coffees, please? With or without sugar? 
I'm afraid I can't answer that. Uh, now, where were we? Uh, perhaps you could tell me a little bit about the work in your department. I'm afraid I can't answer that. Why not? Because I'm afraid I can't admit to the existence of my department. But it's public knowledge. No, it isn't. Well, I know about it. Well, you shouldn't, and if you do, you must forget that you do. In fact, we must both forget that this conversation has ever taken place. Sir William. Yes, come in. Now what can I do for you? <laughs> We've just been talking about leaking secrets to the Germans in 1943. Ah, now you must have come about our application for a new window cleaner. I'm not a window cleaner. Oh, dear. Not a very good recommendation for someone who does it for a living, I would have thought. Still, everyone's got to start somewhere. Let's see what you're like with the chamois, then. Government bubbles. Cabinet minister, order Firstly, eight years talk. Fergie found in bed with the Duke of York. <laughs> yes, indeed. Soon after the end of hostilities with Germany, the Cold War started. Finland versus Iceland, probably the coldest war in history. <laughs> the British Secret Service at this time adopted a low profile. Uh, this was the time of quiet reconstruction, of whispered conspiracies. <laughs> The service was apparently under the command of three men. A, the head of activities department. O, head of the operations department. And Q, head of Q's. <laughs> but things were going wrong. Someone was regularly passing secrets to the Russians. And even worse, someone was regularly passing water in the head of MI5's waste paper bin. <laughs> the last act was, in fact, part of a plot that we believe involved Sir Morris and which is then number two, Colin Henderson admits. Yes, I do, yes. Good. People getting abducted disappear without trace. Inexplicable murders put a smile on our face. Death and crime and subversion, we are happy to know. Every kind of perversion on the probe around the back show. <laughs> So, with Sir Morris clearly our chief suspect, Martin Brown was sent to trail him at his house in Mayfair. On June the 6th, Martin saw him leave the house and cross the road to post a letter. To avoid suspicion, Martin immediately took a bus to Trafalgar Square and lost him. <laughs> Two days later, Sir Morris emerged again. This time, Martin followed him by car, changed into a taxi to avoid detection, and then had to flag Sir Morris down and borrow the money for the taxi. <laughs> Sir Morris then joined Martin in the back of the taxi... And within five minutes, Martin had lost him again. But how would we know, in the unlikely event of our ever finding Sir Morris, whether he was telling us the truth? Well, we invested in a lie detector, and Martin Brown offered to be a guinea pig. But after an hour of watching him running around on a little wheel chewing letters, we got him to take a lie detector test. What's your name? Martin Brown. What do you do? I am a broadcaster. <laughs> Is that the truth? Um, well, uh, I'm a disc jockey then. <laughs> You'll have to try something else. Try Wally. Um, I'm a Wally then. <laughs> yep, except that. Oh, um, Where did you work before? A hospital radio. Okay, does anyone listen to your show? Oh, yes, lots of people. <laughs> no one except that? Well, um, one, one or two people then. <laughs> Well, one, then. My mother. <laughs> no, it doesn't accept you have a mother. <laughs> have you uh, ever made love to a woman? Yes. <laughs> well, well, no, then. OK. Have you ever kissed a girl? <laughs> yes, of course I have. <laughs> no, well, no, maybe not, no. 
Right. Have you ever held hands or had any physical contact with a member of the opposite sex, Martin? Um, I used to have a female goat as a girlfriend. <laughs> Why isn't it buzzing? And now, radioactive presents... Commercial time. I became a legend in my lifetime People called me genius from the start Pretty soon was known as the greatest singer I sang with feeling from the heart I was an artist with a message, yeah I taught the world what soul really means But though I'm dead, it makes me happy to know my music's being used to sell jeans. Classic jeans. Classic songs. Dead singers. Wait a second. Just tap the egg on the head and slice the top off with a knife. No, 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 no. Make a little ring round the top of the egg with a spoon and then just lift it off. <laughs> no one tells Harold Evans what to do. That's why he gets egg all down the front of his shirt. Hello. I'd like to talk to someone about my bank account. I cannot respond to that question. Hello. I need to talk to somebody about my bank account. Question illogical. Question illogical. I just need to talk to someone! At Berkeley's bank, things are a little different. Hello, sir. How can I help you? Thank God. I want to talk to somebody about my bank account. Of course, sir. How can we help? I'd like to arrange an overdraft. Oh, bugger off. <laughs> So who would be the man who would track down Sir Morris? He would have to be ruthless, resourceful and courageous. Our man was none of these. In fact, he was wet, weak and cowardly. And to make matters worse, he was Martin Brown. But for this vital final phase of the investigation, he would be known only by a code name, a name which would completely hide his true identity, a name which he chose himself, the name Martin H. Brown. <laughs> Armed with this cunningly conceived false name, along with a false beard and driving a car with false number plates, nothing could give him away. Nothing except the radioactive Catch the Fifth Man sticker in the back window. The information Martin had been given suggested that he might find Sir Morris in Manchester, so he started by going down to Euston Station and laying a false trail for anyone who might be tempted to follow him. Hello, I'm Martin H. Brown, and I'm going to Bangor. Here, as you see, are my bucket and spade for using on the beach at Bangor, my guidebook to the city of Bangor, and a postcard inviting me to Bangor from an aunt who lives there. Didn't we have a lovely time the day we went to Bangor? That's where I'm going, actually. Yes, sir, and where'd you like a ticket to? 
In Manchester, please. <laughs> Damn. So Martin arrived in Manchester, and in his swimming trunks and water wings, he soon blended invisibly into the crowd. He'd been given an address of a block of flats on the Oxford Road. Not knowing which individual flat might belong to Sir Morris, he used his resourcefulness and pressed all the buzzers on the door at once. Um, uh, hello, is that Sir Morris Watt? <laughs> this ploy failing, his next move was to knock at every door individually, posing as a gas man. A ploy which met with little success, since gas men don't usually go around dressed in swimming trunks and water wings. <laughs> However, he was able to identify the flat of Sir Morris and gained entry posing as a man who was doing a market research survey on some new brands of ice cream. Okay, so um, tell me, what do you think of this one? Is it creamy? Yes, I think so, yes. You think so, yes. Very good. Um, what about this one? Mm, yes, yes. Do you think that one's creamy? Yes, quite creamy, yes. Quite creamy, yes. <laughs> do you think it's more creamy or less creamy than the first one? About the same. About the same, yes. Um, what about this one? Is this one creamy? Four hours later, <laughs> Martin returned to the station with a 25-page dossier on Sir Morris's taste in ice cream. <laughs> Unfortunately, he had failed to get any information about whether or not he was the fifth man, so he was sent back to try again. OK. Quite creamy, right? <laughs> uh, what about this one? Look, I don't think I can eat any more ice cream. <laughs> Well, what about the 38th one? Was that more or less creamy than the first one? I can't remember. Um, about the same. About the same, I see. And um, are you the fifth man? The bigger button? Failing to obtain the confession he expected, Martin then adopted another disguise, cunningly designed to appeal to a retired head of the Secret Service who liked his pipe and his pint. Yes? Avon calling. Can I interest you in any cosmetics? No. Hang on a minute. Weren't you asking me about ice cream a few minutes ago? How did you know? I recognise you by your water wings. <laughs> Martin subsequently tried to gain entry as a dustman come to read the metre. <laughs> a hang glider who had just been the victim of a hit-and-run balloonist. <laughs> from Smash Hits. <laughs> In this last guise, he was surprisingly granted a frank three-hour interview with Sir Morris. <laughs> Unfortunately, Martin had decided to conduct the interview using a concealed microphone. So well concealed, in fact, that the only clearly identifiable sound was the rustle from his jockey shorts. In fact, all the more remarkable since the microphone was actually hidden in his sock. So, Martin returned for one last heroic attempt. Sir Morris, I have here in my hand serious written allegations that you were, in fact, the fifth man. Now, yes, I am. Now, no, there's no, there's no point in denying it, because the evidence is all here on this paper. Yes, I am the fifth man. Now, I must warn you that despite your denial, I shall be taking these allegations to the police. Well, fair enough, it's all true. Yes, well, very well, Sir Morris. If you refuse to answer, then I shall have to leave. <laughs> Yes? Um, I'm sorry, um, I think I may have left my water wings behind. <laughs> it came to our attention around this time that there was a link between all the suspects we'd spoken to so far, and the link quite clearly 
was us. And so we turned our investigations inward and began by interrogating all the staff of Radioactive. First under the spotlight was Martin Brown, who, when asked if he had ever knowingly passed secrets vital to the security of NATO on to the Russians or any other Eastern Bloc country, burst into tears and asked for his mother. <laughs> Next to face the questions was our own Ivan Vinstra, who, when asked if he had ever knowingly sold secrets to the Russians, gave us the recipe for Norwegian goat's milk yoghurt. <laughs> Adding, when pressed further, and on with the music. Next, it was the turn of our Mr. Music Man singing Dr. Philip Persigo, who, as soon as the spotlight was turned on, went into a thundering rendition of Mammy. And finally, the spotlight was turned on our own Sir Norman Tonsil, who conceded that he was, in fact, the sixth man, but that if the information went any further, absolutely no contracts would be renewed for the coming year. But as my programme at 4am on Sundays has now been replaced by a recording of the speaking clock, <laughs> I frankly couldn't give a toss. <laughs> Radioactive was performed by Moenna Banks, Angus Deaton, Jeffrey Perkins, Philip Pope and Michael Fenton-Stevens. Sung by Steve Brown and Philip Pope. The programme was written by Angus Deaton and Jeffrey Perkins. The producer was David Tyler. Sir Norman Tonsil would like it known that his absence from the country is in no way connected with the revelations contained in this programme. He is in fact holidaying somewhere near Moscow and can be contacted at the following address. Care of Mr. Kim Philby, near Mr. Guy Burgess, near Donald McLean, Little England, Moscow, Russia.